0: Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike. Today, we're going to be joined by Ed Vincent. He is founder of Festival Pass, which is a global subscription service that markets uh, live events. Uh, So it's really an interesting sort of undertaking uh, that is trying to bring a level of uh, organization Uh, to sort of the live events industry so not just sort of rock concerts uh, and music things but all sorts of live events whether it be the flower show or the bridal show or some other type of event like that so it was a really interesting conversation I had with him Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur uh, and he's got a background in data analytics and media so he's got a good background for what he's trying to undertake so I thought it was a pretty good interview
1: yeah, it seems interesting, Palin. You know, I'm always interested in platform businesses, and I'm always interested in ways to bring buyers and sellers together in ways that kind of reduce friction and create a better experience. So let's uh, let's listen to see to hear what Ed's got to say and get right to the interview. Hello, Ed. How are you? Hey,
2: Bella. How are you?
0: I am well, thank you. I just sent you an email because uh, I, I thought maybe uh, we had a scheduling mix up, but it sounds not.
2: No, I guess it could have been my fault that I wasn't seeing my uh, Skype come through, so.
0: No. okay. Well, we're connected now, so great. Welcome to the show.
2: Awesome. Let me try and get my video so at least you can
0: see uh, me and say hello. Perfect. Very good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if let me ask you a question uh, to kick this off with. If you're at a social event, and it's not a work-related social event. And you get introduced to somebody. And after the introduction, they say, oh, very nice to meet you, Ed. What do you do? How do you answer that question?
2: Sure. So context is extremely important because that, that event can be a, you call it a social event, but when you're an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to, to all of them are intertwined. So usually if the conversation is about kids and parenting and that, I'll, I'll say I'm a dad. If it is somewhat related in business, I'll often just say I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and then usually in the world of other entrepreneur friends, it's usually I'm an entrepreneur and the current project I'm working on is X.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what is the current thing you're working on? Tell us about Festival Pass.
2: Sure. So so Festival Pass is a global um, subscription marketplace for the live events industry. So if, uh, if anybody can pur- provide context to what that means, a lot of people have heard of Airbnb, uh, and some people have heard of a company called ClassPass. So we like to think we're somewhere at the intersection of the two business models where... Um, If somebody knows ClassPass, they understand it's a credit-based currency business model, which we have as well. Um, So people pay a monthly subscription fee, they receive credits, and then they can use those credits to go to thousands of live events.
0: Oh, very nice. And so it's my understanding, I could be wrong here, so help me. So what are the key, key factors in sort of making a business like that a success, right? It seems like you need to have some level of critical mass before that sort of becomes of interest to people.
2: Yeah. So it's a marketplace and marketplace is a very defined fundamental business model. Um, I chose this business model because I think it's the, the right business model for the right problem. Um, there's many ways to kind of go into any kind of business, but um, the reason it's a marketplace model or at least right for one is because of the, the way the industry is. It's a $200 billion industry it happens to have a lot of um, disaggregated players. So there's t- tens of thousands of different individuals that are creating these live events. Um, and a marketplace model enables them to all come together into one aggregated environment through which consumers can access that.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so you're not talking about places like Madison Square Garden. Right. Right, you're talking about the traditional festivals that happen in the warm weather and in the summertime, and you know the is that correct?
2: Not necessarily. It's any and all live events. Oh, okay. So it could be a concert at Madison Square Garden. It could be a uh, independent live music show at a hundred person venue in Austin, Texas. It could be a film festival in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It could be a food and wine festival in South Beach, Miami.
0: Oh, okay. So it, it's 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 uh, broader than the performing arts.
2: That is correct. So we look at it as the first kind of subscription marketplace for all live events across music, film, food and wine, theater, sports, uh, you know, all the above. Yeah.
0: Isn't certain parts of that, uh, uh, I'll say the live performing piece for now, isn't that certain parts of that sort of controlled by one or two large corporations like Ticketmaster and stuff?
2: Sure. So I, that is one of the uh, potential misunderstandings, uh, from the consumer side is that yes, in the, in the large arena music space, live nation, which is a ticket master owned company, does, is the largest, but live nation in conjunction with the number two and number three player only make up about 15% of the total global market. Got it. So when you, when you realize that, uh, especially here in the United States, that In 2019, because this is pre-COVID, this is a pre-COVID business model and a post-COVID business model, but uh, there was over 15,000 food and wine events alone in the United States. Oh, my gosh. Um, If you think about uh, a radio group like iHeartRadio pre-COVID, they were participants in over 20,000 events across all of their local radio stations from a big country music concert straight down to a beer and sausage festival.
0: Right. Right. So in, in, a, in a business model like this, you, you have to get multiple people, in, multiple sides to the table, right? You need the venue owner or maybe the promoter. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but they sort of have to sign up for what you're offering and doing. So there needs to be some uh, upside or uh, you know, something that interests them, as well as the consumer to, to sort of the end user to say, OK, I'm going to pay this subscription because I think I'm going to do enough of these that it makes sense. So how did you tackle that problem as an entrepreneur?
2: Yeah. So, so it's the same problem Airbnb had when they started same problem. Uber had when they started same problem. Every marketplace had Postmates, the big ones that are now worth $60 billion, $150 billion. You got to start somewhere. So when you start a process like that, uh, it's all about building the infrastructure that then allows you to use almost the seesaw approach to scaling each side. Um, the, the interesting thing with marketplaces is there's uh, those that have a um, root density effect and a global density effect. So when you think of root density, things like Uber and Lyft fit into that model. So in one city, as long as you have enough drivers and enough riders in one city, you could fulfill that model and then you expand it regionally um, place by place. That's, that's, that's more of the model we're in. On the flip side, you have something like Airbnb, which is really a global density concept so that every new piece of real estate that ends up on the platform makes the platform more exciting for those that want to travel to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so what's in it for the for the promoter or the venue owner? Help me understand that side of the equation.
2: Sure. So um, many, many things. So uh, what most people don't realize is... Of course, everybody hears about the big concert that sold out or the large festival like Coachella that always sells out. But there's tens of thousands of other ones that um, have plenty of tickets left over um, at the end of the day. So even in the live event space, it's typical that six, uh, 65 to 70% is u- utilization rate on the, on the tickets, meaning you have 30-plus percent that go unsold. So in that environment... There's plenty of room for uh, having additional marketing channels like access to our members, which uh, they're willing to pay some kind of performance-based revenue share on. So rather than a small event or even a medium or large event to go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in paid media to drive people to buy a ticket at full price, it's often uh, more cost-effective for them to give us some kind of revenue share a la a form of a discount that we pass on to our subscribers as well as use for our own operating budget than it is for them to take that pay media risk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there must be a sort of a sweet spot for something like this. Uh, you know, sort of, can you, can you describe that, what the sweet spot is?
2: Um, well, we'll see the, uh, as we grow on a market by market basis, that all is relevant to the audience and the propensity of certain people in certain markets. Um, you know, I was in New York City for 23 years, now in uh, Austin, Texas, uh, as the last few months, and different audiences, right? So, you know, here in Austin, uh, there's tens of thousands of people that love going nightly to a live music show. Um, that might be a thousand-person show or an outdoor place that they can see 500 people to see a really cool band. Um, in addition, they also have the big stuff here in Austin as well. They have 50,000-person festivals like ACL, uh, Austin City Limits, and South by Southwest. And they also have other great things to do, like uh, there's a new soccer team here called Austin FC that will hopefully get on the platform as well as numerous others. But when you go to New York, you have the intersection of lots of things. You have Broadway. You have Off-Broadway. You have the opera. You have, uh, you know, Yankees baseball, New York Mets, all the things that are integrated. So the answer is there's no core sweet spot unless you look at it in the geo and a targeted audience perspective. And that's the beauty of our model, right, is we we have the breadth of all things, um, but with the highly uh, targeted marketability to personalize the experience for everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what's sort of the uh, onboarding process if, let's say I own a venue and I, I'd like to use this service to sell, as you said, you know, boost my revenues because I have a lot of empty seats at every show. Uh, so what's sort of the onboarding process? What are the things that I have to do in order to become part of this?
2: Sure. So like in any business, really, there's a there's a long tail and, and kind of a direct sale to those that have uh, more technology integration or a larger piece. So a lot of our initial inventory comes from partners. So we have partners that are ticket aggregators. We have partners that are primary ticketing companies. Um, We have venues that own, you know, hundreds of venues all under one kind of corporation. So when when you look at it there, the best thing for us to do is do a direct API integration right out of the database to populate ours. Uh, It's the most efficient, the most uh, real time, um, so that's kind of the, the targeted best approach. And then, of course, there's the, the uh, one-offs for people that run one event, five events, uh, and they can log on directly to the platform, um, sign up as a partner, uh, and then upload their own content right into the platform, just like you would if you were an Airbnb host with one place.
0: Yeah, yeah, very nice. So this tr- certainly strikes me as a, a business that was drastically impacted by covid uh, because fundamentally, a lot of these venues have closed since March, and they're still closed in a lot of places. So yeah. how how have you guys sort of reacted to that? What has that challenges has that brought for you guys, Ed?
2: Sure. So we've taken a, a very um, patient approach. Um, so we really uh, launched a business right early, a few months before COVID. Um, so instead of doing massive pivots that a lot of people in our business have, we chose to hold true to our vision um, and also be aware of all the things that happen along the way that might benefit our business on the other side. So I'll give you an example. is um, we've, we've been building a lot of infrastructure. I have a pretty deep data background. Um, so a lot of our infrastructure enables us to provide insight uh, and a big data graph of about 300 million U.S. consumers that we can utilize in learning more and more about our members and the people that come to our website um, to, to really help in the personalization process. So everything we're doing is to ensure we have infrastructure. So on the other side, when we scale, um, we can scale uh, efficiently and seamlessly.
0: Yeah. And how, how big is the organization uh, today?
2: Uh, it all depends in terms of what measurement.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> People, let's say people, you know, amount of people working on it. Yeah.
2: Sure. So we have about 15 people that are working on the project and then there's numerous other vendors and contractors and agencies that come together for specific roles. Yeah. Uh, but uh, part of that will will grow very quickly as, as our member base grows. So for example, you know, the customer service element is small today, but we'll sure. grow very large when we have hundreds of thousands of members, you know, redeeming tickets on a daily basis.
0: Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Uh so it sounds like uh to me that this is also one of those businesses and and certainly the covid thing has even enhanced this or, or made it even more obvious there's a there's a delay in cash flow you have to you have to develop a, a good size uh infrastructure you have to go out and sell venues and then it may be a, a period of time before the cash starts to flow in so how have you financed this ed
2: Sure so um I have a very specific strategy and approach. <clears throat> I've been an entrepreneur for over 20 years and I've had multiple businesses in the past. Um, I've had a e-commerce business I built and sold in 2001. I had a, a cash flowing agency for many years through the 2000s. I had a SaaS business I built and sold in 2014. Each one of them were financed differently. Uh, and I made a commitment to myself when I began to go after this business was that I I wanted to avoid the traditional venture capital um, institutional funding environments. And that doesn't mean, that that's kind of a plan A. It <clears throat> doesn't mean that we we don't like strategic partners and strategic capital. It just means I didn't want to go down the traditional path of you know the classic VC route. So what we did is I, I, I wrote an article on Medium that explains this entire strategy. If anybody just Googles Medium and Festival Fast and my name, you'll, you'll see exactly what the strategy is. But it was really about... Um, you know, building a, a friends and family network of strategic people, being an entrepreneur, I'm part of an entrepreneur group of 14,000 people globally called EO. Um, you know, there's a few people that love the model from day one and put a little bit of capital up to get started. Um, then I built a very strong board of uh, advisory board. Um, everybody from the former CMO of Live Nation that we spoke about to the head of Coca-Cola North America, to a CEO of a large esports company, to numerous, numerous other great people on the advisory board. So that was the strategy to get um, the proper uh, kind of seats at the table. Then I used that to, catalog, uh, to to roll into a strategic partnership with the third largest radio group here in the U.S., uh, who put in a little bit of cash and and six-figure, uh, you know, seven-figure media budget. So now we had the media to go talk to our consumers without having to take cash out of our balance sheet. So that then transpired into um, testing out the reg CF environment. I don't know, are you familiar with uh, the crowdfunding world?
0: Uh, Yep, sure.
2: So uh, one thing that's interesting is at the end of last year, we just did a very small test to see how we would manage the infrastructure of that kind of raise, um, which is setting ourselves up for going out this year. So Reg CF is a crowdfunding concept where you can now raise up to $5 million a year under um, uh, the initial kind of lower level reporting. So therefore, instead of doing a Reg A or a Reg D, which costs a lot of money, you might as well just go public um, for some of those. With the Reg CF, it's limited in terms of the expense and cost, which is great. Um, so we'll be launching a campaign on March 15th on Start Engine, which is a crowdfunding platform. So that's, that's one source. Uh, and then there's other interesting things we're doing, um, can't necessarily announce it yet, but I can share the concept <clears throat> is we raised, uh, we're in the process of completing a raise of a debt fund that isn't being, um, how do I say, invested directly into our company, but we're creating a fund in partnership with a large money management firm to actually advance $100 million into the live event space. Um, And we'll give live event venues that are suffering from COVID the ability to get cash now um, and come out the other side. And in return, they'll pledge ticket inventory to us for our platform over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah. Well, this is really great because I I think lots of times people think about funding a business, and they immediately think about venture capital, and I'm going to go out and raise venture capital, etc. And I'm a former venture capitalist. So I worked in that industry for a a number of years, and, and started a fund. And you know, that's, that's appropriate for a very small segment of sort of all the businesses that are started. And it puts you on a particular set of train tracks, as I like to say, there's certain things that are going to happen, whether you want them to happen or not. And so being creative about ways of raising capital, I think is a real important lesson here because there's multiple ways of doing that, not just sort of, okay, angels and then VCs, and then I'm going to sell the business or whatever. Uh, and I think you've, you've done that approach. And, uh, say that article again, that you talked about where you talked, described this.
2: Yeah. So me, medium is just the publishing platform um, that a lot of people in the tech space use to self-publish articles um, but it's, it's called, uh, I think it, I call it zero to hundred million with no venture capital.
0: Okay, great. And that, uh, so if they look up medium and Ed Vincent, people will so find fine. that. Yeah. Very yeah. nice. Very nice.
2: Uh, so
0: take me back, uh, where, where, did the spark for this come from? Where did, was it an aha moment, uh, you know, in the shower one day and you said, Oh, this is what I'm going to do next. Or take me through how, how that worked
2: sure so there's there's always context but you're absolutely correct to everything Um, and being an entrepreneur i've had the you know path to go through the process multiple times so i'm always looking for kind of a great idea for an industry that's right for change Um, in the process when i had my agency through the 2000s about a 70-person agency uh, it's when i fell in love with live events as a medium Um, I, I helped build numerous film festivals. I own one down in the Dominican Republic, uh, and we activated big brands at numerous live events throughout the country. So that kind of got me excited about, you know, when you have a live event, it's such a special play fit concept because it's a time and a place that never gets repeated. And whoever is at that place at that moment is something that will, you know, crystallize in history and then you have to go to the next live event, um, so I always loved love live events. <clears throat> then my last business prior to this um, was a data company um, that I founded called Predict Analytics, and we created uh, the data infrastructure for numerous entertainment properties. So folks like A and Networks and AMC Networks and course, Entertainment out of Canada; these were all companies that would utilize my company's tech infrastructure and data um, no, no, uh, knowledge in order to build out their consumer data strategies. So in that process, there was a company that... Uh, are you based here in the U.S.?
0: I am, yep. I'm in upstate yeah. New York, yep.
2: Gotcha. So a lot of people will have heard of this company uh, along the same lines called MoviePass. <clears throat> so MoviePass uh, was an interesting story in the world of the film space that um, you know had a great product market fit, but a bad business model. Um, and I was asked... Through my data company to come help them. Um, so I, I was uh, hired as the interim chief data officer of the company for uh, a little over a year through my company. I never I never worked there uh, as, a, as an FTE. Um, but I went in and I dug in and I understood what it meant to um, participate in and build a subscription-based business model in the entertainment space and what all the levers were that drove gross margin and what actually enabled the business to be sustainable. Um, so in, the, in the, at my time there, <clears throat> I started thinking about, well, hey, I don't necessarily buy into the core business model that was happening at the moment, but then I saw other models like ClassPass, which is a good example, um, that actually had all of the same problems MoviePass did up until about four or five years ago, and they moved over to a credit-based currency business model. And in so doing, it enabled every transaction that a subscriber redeemed to be a positive gross margin transaction, and it then enabled them to have um, proper unit uh, metrics, which then allowed them to use any funding they got to scale the company, but not lose money on every subscriber. Got it. So I decided that, hey, I like that model, and the live events industry is a $200 billion industry that is... Um, you know, led by some of the large folks that you mentioned, and the ticketing world hasn't been, um, how do I say, innovated upon in a very long time. So I knew this was a right place for a marketplace model, and that's what we're after. We're after taking this to a global level, and we're super excited that on the other side of COVID, uh, we say it's going to be like the roaring 20s again.
0: Yeah, now, I think you said in in, in there that you, you have a credit model. I'm not sure exactly what that means.
2: Yeah, so I, I always use the analogy, and uh, I'm not sure all your listeners are old enough to remember, but the old days of the arcade, when you go to the arcade and you give $20 to the machine, you get a bunch of tokens, and then you're able to use those tokens however you please. So a pinball machine might be one token, but a really cool driving game might be four tokens. So... Our model is somebody comes in and they pay anywhere from nine to ninety-nine dollars a month, and for nine dollars you get six credits, and for ninety-nine dollars you get hundred credits. You now can use those credits anywhere you want to go. So, you know, a, a small beer beer and wine festival, you know, in a local community, it might be ten credits, or going to a large concert in a big arena, it might be eighty-six credits. Um, but the consumer will never pay a ticketing fee, uh, which is something that consumers don't like to do, and they will also never pay more uh, on our platform than they would anywhere
0: else. Yeah, and and how do I how do you manage the sort of availability? Let let's say I have the uh, the proper number of credits to go to a particular concert. How do I get a ticket for that concert? How does that part of it work?
2: Yeah, this goes back to the initial question about getting inventory. It's, yeah. Um, We're building all the API-driven integrations so that um, our partners that we work with uh, that are on the platform provide us inventory, right? So if it's an API-driven integration, we know in real time what's available, right? So as long as at the moment, just like any ticketing company, at the moment something is available and they redeem the credits, we grab that ticket. Um, We take the SKU that comes through uh, the API data and we generate a barcode in the Festival Pass app, and then they use their Festival Pass app to attend the event.
0: Right, right. Got it. And this, this credit business model also helps your cash flow, I can imagine.
2: We'll see. It, it, it's, it's meant to, yes. <laughs> um, so the, the concept really is is that those who then buy credits, one, the reoccurring revenue is predictable, oh, right? The beauty yeah. of that subscription business is predictable revenue. The second is even if um people are holding on to credits as a bank account, um, at least we have the knowledge, and this goes back to your cash flow comment, is we have not expended the dollars to our our venues until the redemption of the ticket, whereas we're receiving the dollars from our right. from our users. But um, but we also share from the consumer side that it's like it's like a savings account. And because you can roll your credits over from month to month and because we are always going to pay less here I like to say they're going to earn, if they buy a subscription with Festival Pass, Fest, they're going to earn more than they would if they put it in the bank account and earn 1% or 2% on their money.
0: Right, right. Well, very nice. Very compelling, very compelling story there, uh, Ed. So let's let's go back to uh, Ed as a young lad. Have have you always had entrepreneurial tendencies? Uh, do you come from an entrepreneurial family?
2: Um, the answer is yes. Um, when I say an entrepreneurial family, uh, Partially. Um, so my dad, uh, you know, was in corporate stuff early on and then later in life, uh, had some entrepreneurial projects, but, uh, but I was, a, I was, uh, ended up being a poor kid in a rich neighborhood. So when I was five or, you know, I was little, if I wanted something, I had to figure out how to get it. So I ended up, you know, at 10 years old, I was putting newspapers together to get a free coffee and breakfast at the, at the luncheonette in a beach town in New Jersey and, just from there, I, I never stopped working. So it was just inherent in my process that if I wanted something, I had to, I had to go get it. I was a, I was the youngest kid ever to get a real estate license in New Jersey. I took the test on my 18th birthday. And then uh, during my college years, I was a real estate appraiser. Uh, I, was, I was a kid back then having a fax machine and a computer in my dorm room back in 1991. And most people didn't know what either was.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh did you ever uh, work in a larger company like a Fortune 1000 or something like that?
2: Yeah, so graduating college, I uh, I went off and worked in corporate finance for KPMG, uh and then I was a, an investment banker with Toronto Dominion Bank, which is a, you know, a large bank in their New York investment banking group. Yeah. Um but leaving in 1999 to start my first internet company, never went back to a large corporation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions that, uh, you know, most of the listeners for this show are entrepreneurial or or they have entrepreneurial ambitions. And as a former professor, one of the questions I would get a lot from students is, you know, I'm about ready to graduate. Should I go accept this job offer from a large corporation and go work there for a number of years and then start my business? Or should I start my business today? Do you have an opinion on that?
2: Um. I don't think one is better than the other per se. Um, I think it really is just fueled by whatever the personal passion is at the moment. Um, you know, to, to go start a business, just to start a business, I don't buy into, but if you have a really good idea and you think there's a need in the market, um, then I believe you, you go all in and, and try it. Yeah. Cause even if you fail, you're going to have amazing experiences. Yeah. But uh, that's one whole hard thing I would say about entrepreneurship is, you know, just because it sounds cool to be an entrepreneur doesn't mean you should be. Um, but if you have a really good idea and the market needs something you're offering, then absolutely go for it.
0: Yeah. And Ed, how, spot, talking about market need and opportunity recognition, how do you, what's your approach for that? How do you, how do you sort of identify opportunities uh, when, when you look out into the landscape?
2: Yeah, I, I think everything is contextual to your daily life, right? So as long as you're open to, you know, just like any entrepreneur, I have 17 other ideas sitting in my back pocket. Um, and this is the one I'm going to focus on until it's wildly successful. Um, so the, the, the other thing to be careful about is uh, I love the line that you can be a um, either a sequential entrepreneur or a, um, you know, uh, missing the word, uh, you know, a constant entrepreneur, but never be a simultaneous
0: one. I see. I see. Very good. So, Ed, uh, we've been chatting now for almost 30 minutes. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't, or is there any, anything else you want to bring up?
2: Um, Not necessarily. I mean, uh, and knowing the the title of your, your podcast being Unconventional Path, right? Yes. Uh, you know, and I think uh, when I think of The life I've led, it has been very unconventional. Um, And I think part of it, the only message really to anybody that's listening is is that that's okay. Like, you know, when I told you I was an investment banker and worked for one of the big six accounting firms, I went to a state school in New Jersey. I did not go to an Ivy League school. Um, And so initially I used to think those were in the ivory tower and investment banking must have been smarter than everybody else Till I got there and I realized, yeah, they're smart people but no smarter than you or I, no smarter than anybody else. They just took a path that made it relatively easier for them to get accepted in the job position. Yeah. So the partner, there's always back doors to every success.
0: Right, right. And uh, well, you've been a great guest, Ed. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, thank you very much for, uh, for being here.
2: Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bill.
1: Bela, indeed, this was an interesting interview. What struck you most about your conversation with Ed? Well, I
0: found Ed to be really interesting. Uh, he's got a, a good background for what he's doing. Uh, and, you know, I thought that these types of uh, business endeavors are, are interesting from the, from the perspective of you have to have a certain level of critical mass to make it work. Right. So you need you need venues. You, you need events to be able to sell. Uh, and people who have events don't want to sign up unless you sort of have customers in the waiting. So you have to sort of work both ends of that candle. And I thought his approach was pretty interesting. Uh, He took a broad approach when it comes to the types of events. Uh, But then I think what he decided to do was this notion of sort of uh, focusing geographically. And so we can talk about that a little bit more later, if you like. But this notion of not trying to roll it out across the whole country so he focused geographically, but within that geography, he was broad in trying to build his critical mass and to get both the the venues and the events into his inventory, as well as to get a following of customers that then bring him success. So I thought that was one interesting point. The other interesting point was how he how talked about COVID. You know, he said that unlike a lot of other companies who've done a big pivot, COVID has basically allowed them to sort of... Uh, build out their infrastructure, build out their inventory and their relationships, and it's sort of given them time uh, not to have to rush out and introduce the product in a broad way, but this notion of, you know, let's let's build our infrastructure, let's make sure it's robust, let's do more testing, uh, let's try to sell it more uh, to the events side of the house and and get those people back up and running. So those were the two things I thought were interesting. How about you, Mike?
1: He, he created a very low- fixed cost, low asset uh, intensity model. So he hasn't sunk a whole bunch of money into people, buildings, facilities, uh, uh, you know, cars, trucks, what have you, right, which is where a lot of entrepreneurs got in trouble when they opened a restaurant, let's say, right before COVID hit, because they put all this money into the fixed assets. And then they're stuck when there's no business. So in his case, right, it's a very lean operation, as he talked about, And uh, lots of contractors, and uh, and again, it's a software, predominantly software-based business that you sell. Uh, So it really does. It's easy to scale up and down. And he looked at a bad thing as an opportunity to just take his time and to build relationships and to fine-tune things. So I totally agree that that was really interesting. Um, And and maybe this is for the better in his case because platforms and marketplace business models are a huge challenge. And although we've all seen the success of eBay and Airbnb and things like that, the road is littered with failed startups in this space. And I know you've probably backed a few of these in your in your day. Um, and I've certainly worked with some students and entrepreneurs in building these models. And, um, and they are, they're just a big challenge. Um, Ed's choice is interesting, right? And as you said, you know, this is a, this is a, a an industry that's, big and broad with lots of components, but it's a a, a disaggregated model where there seems to be unequal power, right? Where the people that hold the seats have all the power because these seats go away, right? It's like an airline seat. Once that flight takes off, you can't sell that again. Um, And what happens is, is even though there's just a few big companies, a lot of times that control the, some of these events, um, that this, this idea that these can, these are spoilable or fungible we call them right that that these 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 events have a expiration date customers actually have a lot more power than they think and that's what um, that ed is betting on right that he can sell some of this inventory at a lower price to customers who can get access to things that maybe they thought oh it's too late or I can't access this now whether or not people like to sell something at a discount is another big question about this business model but I think he exposed a, a, a part of this marketplace that's there, kind of an underbelly, right? Where both buyers and sellers are underserved. There's no way for the sellers, the event uh, holders, the event organizers to get rid of this unsold inventory easily. And there's no way uh, for the customers, the people who want to go to these events to see them. Uh, there's no broad place. You know, we, we, he talked about, um about Live Nation which owns Ticketmaster and sure that's that's the the big player in the market and there's some other big ones but there's lots of these small events where they're just not accessible right people don't know about them so i think this has some interesting this interesting opportunity here to create a platform that works
0: yeah yeah i think i think there's this this notion of you know Live Nation uh Ticketmaster uh has certainly uh monopolized I'll, uh, maybe bad word but I'll use that word anyway monopolized a certain segment of this this entertainment market this this event market and they've locked that down but they've they've left alone this other segment and I think that's that's the piece that Ed's going after which is great right i mean that's sort of what you think about opportunity recognition you look at what's going on in the marketplace one part of the marketplace is very well served or it's locked up you can debate whether it's well served or not but it's locked up Uh, but there's other, other parts that are not. And it's sort of like, you know, the major airlines fly into the hubs, but they rely on the smaller regional airlines to sort of service other segments of the market and those small regional airlines. And by the way, in my early days, I used to work for one Uh, way back in my youth. I used to work for a little company called command airways uh, which had 15 passenger airplanes. And uh, you know, we used to fly from New York city to Poughkeepsie and Poughkeepsie to Boston uh, and a few other places, and and we were basically, you know, getting people to the larger airports because it was a segment that the major players ignored. So I think Ed's going after a segment that the major players ignored, and these smaller venues, these smaller events, I think always have extra capacity. It's very rarely that they're all sold out. So because they 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 can't advertise, it's hard for them to advertise. It costs a heck of a lot of money. It there's just it's not a lucrative uh, high end type of business a newspaper not going to cover that event, right? If the Rolling Stones are coming to town, the newspaper's going to cover it. it. You know, a lot of places are going to know about that sort of automatically. But if if some other smaller band has come in, it's a much harder thing to do. So I think that's the part that Ed's going after. So I like that notion of sort of going after un- underserved, unserved markets and recognizing that opportunity. Uh, at the same time, as you mentioned, it's a heavy lift, as, as I like to say, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff has to come together and happen for this to be a success. A lot of stars have to align because you have multiple sets of customers. You have the venue owners, you have the ticket purchasers, uh, and, and you got to position all this properly to both folks. And, and you have to sell both ends of that candle in order to make it work.
1: And that's that's the problem with these types of models. You have to have enough enough seats so that customers are interested in using the platform, but you also have to have enough customers so that the venues are willing to to right. post them. Right. right. Right.
0: And and when you launch it, it's important because if I try this as a, as a customer and I try to get a ticket to two or three events and I can't get them, that's it. I'm done. I'm not trying it anymore.
1: Yep. Right. So you yep. you, you only have a, a, a one chance to make a good first impression. That's right. right.
0: Right, you only got a couple shots at this with with any individual, so you sort of have to have that inventory there and that's always a challenge, right?
1: But this is where his kind of geographic region by region, right? And by invitation in the beginning, I'm sure, and things like this. So, you know, there's some ways to do it. And he seems like a very smart person with lots of experience in this space. And, you know, we've often said having that experience in the industry that you're working in can be a real benefit. And, you know, although, you know, we've had some guests and it's like, yeah, I just kind of got into this, right? But this is a case where that deep knowledge is is really helpful, I think, to him and will make it more likely that he can be he can be successful.
0: Yeah. I the agree. other
1: side of this though, Bela, is that, you know, okay, maybe part of the exit strategy is a Ticketmaster, Live Nation, kind of one of these things, buys him if he's successful. But I'm not so sure this is hard to imitate, right? I'm not so sure that one of these other competitors could could get into the same space because he's using these APIs, right? So he's using these hooks that he can program in. It's a great low-cost model, but it's really easy to imitate. There's nothing, I don't think, that's unique there. He's just hoping that once he locks in enough cu- customers on both sides that they won't want to change. And as we know both sides can be incentivized if the price is right.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know that, uh, again, having invested in my VC days and some businesses that are in this space, uh, Live Nation, uh, with the venues they have, they typically sign three-year agreements. Um, so they lock them up for a certain period of time. And so I don't know, Ed and I didn't talk about that. I don't know if he's going to have some type of an agreement, but switching cost here is is pretty low. And I think Ed's, mm-hmm. Ed's sort of challenge here is to make the switching cost high. And most of the times, high switching cost is not because you have a contract, but it's because you've, you've total, you, you're, the business is totally dependent upon you to be successful. That, it's not about a contract. It's about being dependent upon you for them to be successful. So I think that's going to be one of his big challenges is to make the switching cost high because if the switching cost yeah. is low, it's like switching from Uber to Lyft. At, right. it's easy download <laughs> right? an app and that's it that's it right, right, it's I'm 30 done, seconds right? or a minute right uh, boom so that's not very sticky as as we like to say um and the switching cost is low you want to figure out how to make the switching cost high you want to figure out how to make this sticky so the venues don't want to leave you and the ticket purchasers the cust- the, the end customer doesn't want to leave you either yeah.
1: But again, he's a smart guy and, and other people have found ways around this in other industries. It'll just be interesting to see if you can find the right configuration, right, of, of loyalty programs and, and bundling and things like this. The other thing that's a risk is that if it gets too popular and everybody expects to wait and, you know, that the behavior changes. So if I wait, I'll get a I, I want to go to this to this food show um, and if I wait, I think I'll be able to score it for 20% less on this platform. So I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to buy the full price tickets. And too many people swamp the, uh, you know, it's supposedly a self-regulating market that, oh, then they're scarce again. Right. But I'm not sure that then people don't look for another discounted show to go to. So it could really hurt the full price and wind up hurting the margins of the of right. the companies that are offering them and they stop.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. As you're saying that, I'm thinking about, hmm, well, here's an opportunity to do demand pricing. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if if he's selling all tickets, he can see what the demand is like and 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 he can sort of maximize the revenue to the venue owner or the promoter and to himself. But that that then then all of a sudden the value proposition to the ticket, the ticket purchaser changes because all of a sudden that dynamic is
1: is a little bit different. Now you're pricing like an airline. Right. Right. With a premium and you know he's a smart it doesn't take much to be smarter than me Baylor. we both know this right and he's a smarter guy than i am but to me th- that would be the model i would chase with this is it's not necessarily discounted it's demand based and so therefore the price can fluctuate and i can actually get the seller a bigger margin even than on some tickets that that cheer he might sell themselves right, right ahead of time right um and and that would be the cool the, the, to me that would be a much more interesting pricing approach yeah yeah
0: excellent so i thought it was a Interesting guy to talk to. Interesting uh, business model.
1: Agreed. One of the things that I think was cool is you know you've it's been you know you and I have taught in the classroom a lot together, and one of the things I really like is your ability to say, look to entrepreneurs VC, and you said it on the, on this podcast several times. You know, getting VC money is not for everybody, right? That it's really it's you know I, I like your train track um, uh, uh, analogy, and and I you know I shamelessly steal that and give you credit a lot, right? But you're right. And he saw that. And it was really nice to have a guest that just got it right. And again, shows you what a smart guy he is, right? He got that 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 VC money comes with strings. And he was doing everything in his power to avoid doing that because he didn't want to get caught up in in the cost yeah. of VC money. Yeah. Right. And he designed his business model. So we wouldn't need VC. Money, right. Right. I thought that was that was cool. But you know, we haven't talked so much about crowdfunding. We've talked about in the sense of, oh, Kickstarter and things like that. But this is literally a different beast. And I don't know that we've talked about it so much on the podcast where small investors can get in and actually buy equity. You're not buying a a, a pre-sale of a product or a service. You're putting in small amounts of equity. And this is a growing, you know, a, a growing trend that I think probably a lot of people have heard about. What's your take on this? Is is crowdfunding in terms of equity financing um, is this a good, a good thing for people to be looking at? And, and did this seem to make sense to you? Or what's your take on this?
0: So I'll give you my, not my VC take on this, but my CEO take on this. Uh, having been a former CEO on numerous occasions, you want to be careful because I'm not sure you want five or 600 shareholders. Because as a company, you have responsibilities and obligations, legal ones, uh, to those shareholders, uh, to keep them informed, to have a shareholder meeting once a year, et cetera. So you start when you, there's some, there's some very important things to understand if you're going to start selling shares, uh, not to institutions, right? I mean, to have one or two institutions invest, you're, you're managing a relationship with, with, you know, a few institutions, which means a person representing each of those institutions, like a VC or a even a bank, if you get a loan from a bank, you're talking to the, you know the loan guy, the loan person, um, or, a, or a, if you get an investment from a, a, a family office, you're talking to one person there. But if you start selling shares of stock to individuals, uh, it comes with some legal responsibilities that you have to uh, follow uh, and regulations. And uh, you want to be careful there because you're going to have a bunch of shareholders and they're going to have certain expectations and their expectations are not going to be uniform. And so just be cautious about that. It's, it's an opportunity that exists, and I'm not trying to, to say it's not good. It's a good opportunity. But I guess my point is, no matter how you raise money, whether it be from friends and family, whether it be a VC, or whether it be through one of these crowdsourcing uh, ways, or whether it be a loan from a bank, they all have some constraints and strings associated with them. And make sure you understand what they are. No matter how you raise money, it's going to have some things that you're going to have to manage and be aware of and, and want to make sure that those constraints that come with that money match and align with where you want to go as a business. And if they do, that's great. And if they don't, then be careful.
1: Yeah, Bela, you know, there's a lot of things in life where people don't bother to read the fine print. And there's a lot of times in life that you get away with that, and that's no problem. But one of the areas that I've learned the hard way, and I think you've seen this the hard way too, is that when it comes to financing, the fine print matters. It's really important. And it's really important that before you choose a financing method, that you have a good lawyer and a good accountant look over this and help you understand the, the risks involved and the obligations that you have, because people really do get burned. Um, entrepreneurship can be a great thing, but there's always stories of people that get hurt by it, right? That that things fail and it kind of causes problems and people are scared. But if you know, if you read that fine print on your financing, you're going to save yourselves a lot of problems and you're going to really be able to avoid actually a lot of the negatives that sometimes people associate with entrepreneurship because you're going to Only get into these financing agreements with your eyes open um, and getting yourself into things that um, you know aren't going to cause a problem from you downstream, whether you're successful or not. Yep. Yeah?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, Mike. Very good. Cool.
1: Well, what do you think? Should we wrap this up? Sounds good to me. All right. Listeners, thanks for joining us once again. Uh, We hope you found this episode interesting and thought-provoking. And as always, if you have questions about what we've discussed uh, or have suggestions for people to... uh, that we should be interviewing or topics we should be talking about we're always happy to hear from you please get in touch with us by email at baila.and.mike at gmail.com
0: and please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already Uh, so until next time signing off from upstate new york see you soon mike
1: that's great Bela, from over here in munster germany i look forward to seeing you again soon bye